Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm here for a second time with Dr. David Barish, professor, uh, professor of psychology emeritus at the University of Washington. And today we're going to talk about his most recent book, Threats, Intimidation and its Discontents. So David, welcome to the show again. It's a pleasure to have you on. My pleasure as well, Ricardo. Thank you. Okay, great. So, I mean, because you apply an evolutionary perspective to most of your work, let's perhaps start by trying to understand what threats really are from an evolutionary perspective. So, what would you have to say about that? Sure. Um, now, I know normally when people begin to speak about their work, it's recommended that you not begin by talking about what you're not going to be talking about. But I think, I think in this case, given that the title of the book is Threats, and it's my most recent concern, I think it's important that your, your listeners or viewers understand there are a whole array of threats that I will not be talking about. Not that they don't have some evolutionary implications, because I think everything human beings do has evolutionary aspects. But among the threats I'm not going to be talking about are those that we might consider more objective threats, such as, well, the pandemic, for instance, that's going on now. Uh, global, well, I call it global heating, not global warming, because warming has a sort of a pleasant, cozy feeling. So, uh, so I'm not going to be talking about global heating. Um, I'm not going to be talking about possible asteroid impacts or super volcanoes. Again, these are all threats, but not the threats that I'm concerned with and, and that have a particular evolutionary aspect. The threats that I am concerned with are those threats that are, well, let me back off. I am concerned about all these other threats as well, but they've been handled much more effectively, I think, by people who are more expert in them. So I don't deny the importance of any of these threats, but the threats that I'm focused on now have to do um, with threats that are in a sense interpersonal, that are conveyed by uh, one individual in most cases to another, or in some cases that we'll talk about later, uh, one country to another. Um, so it's threats that are stated essentially in the form of if then, Name, not, uh, namely, if you do something that I don't want you to do, presumably, then the consequence will be I'll do something back to you that you don't want ha to happen. And the result is you'll regret having done it in the first place. And so the idea of this kind of threat is then to prevent another individual or another country from doing something that you don't want. So it's really based on communication. Uh, the communication of an effort to stop someone or another country from doing something. And so in that sense, it's very, if you will, very evolutionary because evolution is, is among other things, particularly concerned with how individuals interact with each other. Um, and so in the book, um, I start, it really, in, a, in a sense, divided into thirds, uh, the, the, the first part deals with uh, how threats are communicated among animals, um, then how threats are, how they uh, 
work within societies. And then the third part is threats that are communicated between countries, particularly threats about nuclear retaliation. So in a sense, all three of these components are what we could call deterrence, effort to deter another individual or another country. The last part, when I talk about nuclear deterrence, is in fact um, the most extensive part of the book. Um, it also, to be honest, and I'm sure you're aware of this, Ricardo, but and I don't know to what extent your viewers and listeners are. This is one, this aspect is a, a bit of a departure, I think, from most of your other shows. I've listened with great interest and appreciation to your shows. Most of them deal very effectively with aspects of human behavior more internally. Um, this one, uh, dealing specifically with nuclear deterrence, deals really with sort of external aspects and has a more political slant, I think, than most of your shows. And I hope your uh, audience will appreciate that, or at least not be too upset and maybe even maybe even learn something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, of course. But I mean, from an evolutionary perspective and now talking about the biological side of things, so is there any evolutionary rationale for the evolution of threats? Absolutely. So uh, there is a great deal of evolutionary rationale. If we consider what's going on in communication, one of the insights that evolutionary biologists have had, particularly actually the, some of the work of Richard Dawkins um, and, and others, he's, he's not alone in this, um, including myself actually, but, but Richard really sort of pioneered much of this. When communication occurs among individuals, the old fashioned way of looking at it, if you will, the older biological way, is that it's an effort to convey information. And the more accurate that information, the more successful is that communication. Well, that's okay up to a point, but what it ignores is that in many cases, individuals are seeking essentially to manipulate other individuals. That is, if you take, I mean, it sounds cynical, but regrettably, it's almost always true, um, except in our communication, of course. I, there's no way I would attempt to manipulate you or our audience. But it, it, if you accept the basic notion of selfish genery, if you will, that the role of genes, the function of genes is to maximize their projection into the future, then uh, why should individual A simply provide accurate information to individual B? Unless perhaps that information is useful to the sender. Now, now that does happen in many cases. Uh, honeybee communication would be an excellent example. Uh, when a scout bee finds a food source, she's not interested in misrepresenting the presence of the food source. It's in her interest to convey accurate information because she's part of the hive. She's closely related to the hive mates. So that's a really good case of accurate information transfer. But in many, many other cases, natural selection favors not necessarily communication as such, but rather effort to influence the behavior of the recipient. And um, when it comes to threat, of course, there's a very evident role here. Individuals want to prevent, in many, most cases, prevent the recipient from doing something. It may be 
you want to prevent the 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 uh, uh, the, the recipient from uh, making incursions into your territory, or from trying to steal your mate, um, or you want to prevent the individual from attacking you. Um, so any number of things that you where you want to convey information about yourself and what will happen if the other guy transgresses um, in a way that is believable and effective. And so the, the adaptive value of being able to change the behavior of someone else um, is likely very high. And we observe this, of course, in the animal world and not surprisingly in, in, in the human world as well. Yeah. Does it have anything to do with sexual selection? Because I would imagine that at least when it comes to the more physical threats, it's mostly males who perform them, I guess, at least to some extent. Or, or am I thinking wrongly here? No, I think you're thinking, I think you're thinking completely <laughs> correctly, Ricardo, as you so often do. Um, there's certainly manipulation in the sense of misrepresentation that individuals uh, engage in with regard to courtship, uh, particularly males. Um, beyond that, the issue of threats is again especially high, as you, as you just mentioned, with regard to um, sexual selection. Individuals, again, particularly males, have been strongly selected to threaten other males and keep them from quote, their, close quote, females. Um, and so a great deal of the behavior that males have been selected to engage in to, in a sense, impress females is also used to threaten other males. If you're large, if you have, if you're a, a, a deer or elk or moose, for instance, if you have large imposing antlers, if you're uh, uh, almost any mammal, for instance, and you have large imposing teeth, these may or may not impress a potential mate, often regrettably perhaps they do, but they also are used very effectively in threatening other males. So uh, there's a, a double payoff, if you will, in the animal world, uh, both being more attractive often to a potential mate and also being more effective in um, conveying a threat. Mm -hmm. And threats evolved alongside deterring behavior, correct? Absolutely, yeah. So it's not just the um, physical structure of the individual in question, but the behavior that, that goes along with it. Um, this actually raises a very interesting, one of many, I think, very interesting questions when it comes to threat behavior in animals and it has implications, very much has implications for people as well, which is one problem with a um, threatening individual, a would-be threatener, is that that individual may not be believed. That is to say, given the payoff of, let's say, me threatening you to keep away from my woman, for my female, there'd be a real payoff for me if I do that effectively. As a result of that, there would also be an evolutionary payoff for me to exaggerate my ability to fight you, for instance, or also my inclination to do so. And so natural selection would then, in the context of this manipulation and a degree of dishonesty, 
would select for a tendency to exaggerate one's threat. Um, now that in turn, there's an arms race here that would go on. Then that in turn would select for the ability of the recipient to see through any exaggeration. And this goes sort of bounces back and forth in terms of selection pressures. When it comes to animals, it's, it's quite interesting that most animals actually have a guaranteed credibility mechanism to some extent in their behavior, but even more so in their in their bodies. That is to say, if you're an elk or a deer and you have great big antlers, you really have great big antlers. You can't, <laughs> that can't be faked. Um, if you have a big strong neck, big muscles in your neck to hold up that head and the antlers, it, it makes sense for the recipient to believe you. Um, and so for many, many animals, there is a built-in credibility component to making a threat. Um, not always. There are cases where if, if your bluff is called as an animal, the one making the threat has to say, well, I, I didn't really mean that, or <laughs> essentially uh, run away. Um, and again, there are very real implications of this for, for humans, especially when we get to the nuclear phenomenon, where the issue of credibility is a, a, a particular problem. Um, there's some other fascinating cases of animal threats that many people don't know about. I'll just mention one other. We, when we think of threats, most people think of animal threats, let's say. Most people think of the sort of obvious ones for a human to see and sometimes be afraid of, big, big mouth, big teeth, large claws, et cetera. Um, Animals, many animals have also been selected to engage in threat with regard both to their, with regard to their behavior and also their appearance. Some of the dramatic examples would be animals that are themselves um, really bad tasting or even poisonous, which will often have then a very bright coloration. And I did discuss this at some length in the book. This is so-called warning coloration. Um, now, to some people, it seems really weird. Why should these animals be so conspicuous, particularly the so-called um, uh, poison dart frogs from uh, Central and South America? Brightly colored, gorgeous, but really conspicuous by virtue of that. Well, their skin is highly toxic. And so that constitutes then a threat to a would-be predator who, having had maybe a, a small experience with them in the past, is going to avoid them from then on. So that's a, an important threat um, that doesn't involve a big teeth or, or antlers. Interestingly, that raises some fascinating issues, things that um, evolve, because once you can, if, if there is a species, say, that can effectively scare off, threaten another by virtue of, say, its color. Well, it's not very expensive to make a color in your skin. And so selection then favors mimicry, where you may have, that not may have, you do have individuals who mimic uh, that threat coloration without, in fact, actually being poisonous, because it's actually expensive to be poisonous, to ingest things and manipulate them biochemically. Um, so if you can pretend, if you will, if you can threaten that you're dangerous without actually being dangerous, um, that can, there can be a real adaptive value in that. And just a, a last example here, or, or the, the best known example, at least in North America, 
are the um, monarch butterflies, which are brightly colored, black and orange, and they are mildly toxic, particularly to birds. Well, there is uh, there are other butterflies, particularly one called the viceroy, uh, which mimics the monarch. It has not identical, but very similar black and orange patterning and coloration. And it's able to get by essentially with a threat that's dishonest. It's it's pretty nifty, I think, that the monarch is the, the what we call the model, and the viceroy, who is like the, the alternative leader, is the mimic who is pretending to be, well, is threatening, but is pretending to be able to follow through on the threat, but in fact isn't able to do so. So the world of animal threats is a fascinating one. In some cases, very obvious. In other cases, much more subtle. Uh, and there are, again, actions and counteractions, and natural selection does its marvelous, fascinating thing out there in the world. Mm -hmm. I think that another important aspect here we have to consider, and even more so perhaps in the case of humans, is social selection, correct? Because, I mean, if we are at least to believe what people like Richard Rangham say, then social selection played a very big role in our evolutionary history by eliminating, for example, the most violent males from the group and uh, promoting the the evolution of, uh, I mean, in our case, we are less reactively aggressive than other closely related species, but more proactively aggressive. I think that's the case. Yeah, well, that's a fascinating, it's really, a, I have to emphasize, it's a hypothesis. We, we don't, can't really prove it at this point or provide a, a really impressive confirmation. Um, but it's looking, it looks to me at least, like it's a very valid hypothesis, and I do discuss this at some length in the book. The, the basic idea, um, for those in the audience who are, are not familiar with it, is that human beings, well, first of all, it's, it's worth looking at the fact that human beings don't really behave, I mean, we think of ourselves as being aggressive, and in some ways we are, of course. We, if you look at the dramatic examples of horrible violence, but most of the time, I mean, here we are, seven and a half billion people on planet Earth, and most of the time we don't hurt each other or kill each other. Um, we behave really quite benevolently even to people to whom we're not related and don't even know. We, we can get on a bus, we can go to a movie. Well, we couldn't do it, can't do it now with the pandemic, but we had a long history of being able to be in close association with strangers without much going on. You couldn't do this with chimpanzees, for instance. They would be killing, they'd be at each other's throats. And so there's an interesting observation that human beings um, tend to inhibit much of their aggression or aggressive inclinations. And the idea here, or one idea, is that part of this may have well have been based on the fact that in the past, individuals who were particularly dangerous and threatening um, were, well, first of all, they were would have been presumably warned or uh, there would be perhaps organization or coalitions that pointed out their inappropriate behavior if they were unwilling or unable to restrain themselves, um, there is some substantial evidence that those individuals would be, if not ostracized, which could be really painful and hurtful and hurtful of one's uh, adaptive value, certainly, 
but actually even kill. And so ironically, it's quite possible then that we came by some of our non-aggressiveness by virtue of a degree of ancestral aggressiveness that got rid of those who stepped beyond the lines of acceptability. And to some extent, uh, I, that's still true today. If individuals are too threatening to their social group, they are ostracized, uh, they may well be locked up, um, and in extreme cases, they may even be killed. People learn as well, when they see this happening, they learn essentially not to be too threatening to others because uh, of a long history that if they are, uh, it's not in their interest. And indeed, it's not just history, it happens now. People are kept out of the um, social system if they behave in ways that are inappropriate, that are too threatening toward others. Right. And I mean, that would be a good example of deterrence, right? Our criminal justice system. Yes, that's the idea for sure. Uh, d uh, of course, there are many reasons for for criminal justice systems and for locking up uh, perpetrators, criminals. Um, of course, one of them is just to get them out of society so they don't do it again. Uh, ideally, it's to rehabilitate them, although that with the exception of Scandinavian countries, that doesn't, where they do a lot of good rehabilitation, that doesn't happen very much in, uh, certainly not in my country, the United States. Uh, we're much more concerned, I fear, with locking people up. It's a classic line, lock them up and throw away the key, you know. Um, there have been some dramatic cases in history of uh, rules based, and again, this is in the in the middle section of my book where I talk about deterrence within societies, um, where the use of punishment, particularly capital punishment, literally executing malefactors, was very, very common and grotesquely overdone. I mean, in, in, in England, for instance, so there was the so-called bloody code during the uh, 17th and 18th centuries in particular, where people were literally executed for stealing, you know, a, 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 a fountain pen. Um, it was grotesque, gro I was gonna say inappropriate, it's far worse than inappropriate. Um, it was, went on for quite a long time. And eventually there were record there was recognition during the 19th century in England and in other countries as well to some extent that that um, one has to have as the uh, in the Gilbert and Sullivan operetta the Mikado have the punishment fit the crime okay um, and yet uh, regrettably still in the United States we still do at least some states still engage in capital punishment that's a major threat. Okay, and yet this is a threat that really doesn't work, and I uh, I explain this at some length, uh, regret with great regret, that the evidence that capital punishment deters serious crime, namely murder, particularly or, or somewhat rape or or uh, treason, that evidence is not just non-existent but uh, strongly goes in the other direction, and yet for many people the idea of severe threat um, against potential evildoers still exists and is still um, very widespread. 
Um, I suppose if it really did work, it would be worth something, but it really doesn't. Now, mm -hmm. by the way, with regard to threats with it that are uh, issued by society, there are a number of others, but may, I don't know if you want to proceed and discuss some of these. Um, yeah, the of course, and I guess that another domain would be religion, right? Absolutely. Now, um, I guess I should, as we say, uh, lay my cards on the table. Um, I'm very much an atheist, a, a fundamentalist atheist, if you will. I don't have any belief whatsoever in an afterlife, whether heaven or hell. Um, I think when it comes to threats, obviously the notion of hell is one that uh, is especially important to identify. Um, the threat of hell is very widespread in, in, uh, in, the, in the, certainly in modern religions, um, actually more so in the, in the recent past, it's become somewhat unpopular to talk about hell, at least in some areas. Um, Islam still speaks at some length about um, very dramatic uh, and, and horrific punishments. Uh, in Christianity, particularly in Catholicism, hell has had a very large place. I guess, the, I mean, the, the most dramatic example is not so much in official theology, but in, uh, in Dante's Inferno, where the, the, the examples are both grotesque, horrifying, and in some ways downright comical in their extremity. Uh, and I describe this again in the book. Um, the idea is, again, to threaten, the idea that many religions engage in then, is to threaten their followers with permanent, unceasing punishment unless they toe the line, unless they do whatever it is that the religion wants them to do. Um, interestingly, Ricardo, there is some real evidence that it works. That is to say, there is some social science data that show that among societies, uh, among people who believe that hell, the, the retribution of hell is real, uh, these people are more likely to follow the rules. Not dramatically so, but uh, enough to be significant and apparently real. Um, at the same time, there's a great deal of evidence that the psychological, t the, um, there may be social benefits in that there's less rule breaking, less law breaking, more following, more avoidance of quote, sin, whatever the religion, for instance, perceives to be sinful. But at the same time, the intra psychic effects are pretty serious. Um, people are, there's a, again a, a, a great deal of evidence that people are really harmed by this fear of hell and particularly if it's drummed into your head when you're very young. Um, even, I, I know a number of recovering Catholics for instance who don't believe in the dictates of the church anymore but having gone through so many incredibly threatening uh, 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 stories and as a result, there's a part of them that still can't get over that, can't get over a sense of great guilt, 
for any number of things, even behaviors that many people would consider recognized to be normal, a lot of them having to do with sex, whether it's masturbation or sexual desire, just desire alone. Uh, Christ is reported to have said that if you sin in your heart, it's as though you have sinned in reality. Well, that's, that's a pretty heavy thing to get around. It's hard for people, many people at least, many healthy, perfectly healthy, normal, good people to avoid having fantasies, whether of aggression or of sex, or both, aggressive sex, um, even if they never do it, and yet to feel uh, consumed by guilt and anxiety. And so the notion that uh, religions have used threat to manipulate the behavior of many people, I, I find really um, regrettable would be an understatement. Uh, I would consider it in many ways downright despicable. And yet it's very widespread. Mm -hmm. Does it also apply in the case of politics, particularly since recently we've seen the rise or the re-rise, because it also happened in other periods of our history, uh, of right-wing populism? Could that be a response to threats? I think it really is. Uh, there are, again, uh, there are a lot of data now, certainly within the United States, that the um, political success, at least in the past, of Donald Trump was due to the fear that a, a rather large proportion of the population had, particularly white males, uh, although not limited to them, that they were under threat that their position in society um, was not what it used to be, that uh, to some extent, even if they were not doing well economically, that they felt pretty good about themselves socially, because if nothing else, they were in some sense above those who are of uh, darker complexion, for instance, or who speak a language whose first language is not English. And so people were able to, in some, in some sense, feel better about themselves than they have of late when they find themselves increasingly not quite a minority, but en route to becoming a minority in, quote, their country. Um, so this leads to questions of, um, is our lifestyle then under threat? And many people have felt, in fact, that it is. And they saw in Trump a, um, a representative of someone who I think did feel that way himself to some extent. I think his racism is actually quite evident. Um, in many cases, he simply hinted at the racism, but it was enough in a sense of exclusivity, keeping out those other people, the Mexicans who we described so ridiculously is there they're all rapists etc not all but you know a lot of them are rapists and drug fiends and all this um and so many people then gravitated toward that perspective because of feeling under threat themselves and they still do um i'm delighted as you can imagine that mr trump is no longer president uh, but that sense of threat that such a large proportion of a population have is still there. Now, I have to add, I'm not that I'm not as familiar as I should be, I think, with the forces, the factors that resulted in the rise of um, Bolsonaro in, in Brazil and Modi in India. And uh, um, unfortunately, there, there are others, Erdogan in Turkey. Um, 
I don't I, I hesitate to say or suggest that it's a it's a, a result of a comparable sense of threat but I'll say it anyhow I think it is actually um, within Turkey there was there's a fear among among uh, Islamists that the country had become too secular uh, in India there's a fear among Hindus even though they constitute the, the, the majority that the Muslims are doing too well and that they're not doing as well, they, the Hindus aren't doing as well as they should and so a hyper Hindu appeal has been appealing for them. So here, I guess I'm, a, <laughs> I just contradict <laughs> myself. I think there is that role, that impact, that, or that impulse of people feeling under threat that has given rise to a lot of the right-wing populism that we observe, certainly in the US and I, I suspect elsewhere too. Mm -hmm. Is it possible for us to know when we should take threat seriously? Yeah, that's an excellent question. It's not always possible. Um, often it's true that threats um, can be exaggerated. And once they are, then we have that problem of the, the boy who cried wolf, you know, that notion of disregarding a claim of threat because maybe they, it's been made too often. Um, and especially just not unlike the, the, the situation in, uh, in animals that we just talked about, where the, if the model is sufficiently effective, you can get mimics um, who pretend to be threatening but are, aren't really. So you can get people who claim that they are threatening uh, even if they're not, and so you have you can have artificial or inappropriate responses, responses that that um, aren't really called for. Um, I suspect that one of the evolutionarily based problems that human beings have is that we tend to look for immediate issues. If someone raises a fist that's a threat. If they have a knife in their fist, it's more a threat. If they have a gun, it's more of a threat. Um, so immediate, if your house is on fire, that's a threat. Um, on the other hand, if there's a threat of something like global heating or nuclear war, um, these are certainly global heating, even though it's going on, goes, it happens gradually. It's hard to detect on a day-to-day -day basis. Something like nuclear war, which I believe is a huge threat and one that is generated by our use of threats. In fact, the risk of it is generated by our use of threats. And I'm sure we'll get to talk about that, too. Um, in that case, it's not happening at all right now. And so it's very easy to, all too easy, to understate the impact uh, of those threats. Um, I'll, I'll mention something now that uh, just yesterday I was reading a um, a poem by the American poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti, um, which was published in 19 or in 2012 when Ferlinghetti was 93 years old. Um, he just died recently at the age of I think 101 or 102. He's a, a glorious poet with great impact. The title of his lengthy poem is um, time of useful consciousness. And I thought, that's a strange title. And so I looked up the title and I, I Googled it and 
the first thing I got was not the name of this poem, but this phrase, time of useful consciousness is apparently a phrase, and I just learned this yesterday, okay? This is a phrase that is very popular, much used in military aviation. And it refers to, it's really scary, it refers to the time between when a pilot has run out of oxygen and when he or she is no longer able to control the airplane and is really about to die because you're going to crash, you can't do anything. So it's this very brief period when you're under enormous threat and when you have the opportunity to do something about it. And part of the problem is that it is very brief and potentially lethal. And I think that what they call the TUC, the time of useful uh, consciousness is something that our species has perhaps right now. Ferlinghetti wasn't talking about that directly in his poem, but I can't help but extend it to there. I think we are now in a time of useful consciousness. Um, we haven't quite run out of oxygen, but we are suffering from, we are being exposed to, although we may not recognize it, a great deal of threat. And I think we damn well better use that time. We have some consciousness now, and it's time for us to make use of it, because I fear that we may not have that much more time left. I should have included that in the book, but I hadn't discovered this poem until just yesterday. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, before we get into nuclear deterrence, there's a, a thing that I find really interesting that is... So there are things that from an evolutionary perspective are very novel and we should take as threats, but we don't like certain modern diseases, smoking, car crashes, glo global warming and things like that. But then there are others that are also novel and we over, we sort of overreact to them. Like for example, genetically modified organisms, vaccines that, that are very relevant now with, uh, in this current pandemic. Uh, how, how do we make sense of that? <sighs> I'm not sure I can make a great deal of sense of it, Ricardo. I think the point is a very good one. Um, I think just as people have talked about compassion fatigue, uh, sometimes there's a degree of threat fatigue, I think, that's on the other extreme, where people say, oh, come on, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of hearing about this problem and that problem and all these other problems, and so I just refuse to accept that there are any. And then on the other extreme, as you just mentioned, you get people who perceive a threat everywhere. Um, genetically modified organisms, that can be a threat, and, and there are some situations in which it's been hurtful, but on balance, uh, I think the evidence is overwhelming that most of them have been immensely helpful. Um, we have to be careful about it, but that sense that so many people have that anything that smacks of genetic influence, genetic manipulation, if you will, is a bad thing. Well, that's what natural selection is, is ge genetic modification. It happens naturally. But artificial selection happens all the time, too. It's been very useful to us. That's how we have cows and chickens and forms of plant like wheat and rice and things that, that, I mean, this is a result of genetic manipulation that happened admittedly over a period of time. Nonetheless, it's a 
I think it is certainly possible for us to overshoot in our responses to things. And vaccination would be yet another example here. Well, oh my gosh, you know, the, the integrity of our bodies are so important, which they are. We No one wants to have things stuck into your body. And yet, and, and that is widely perceived as a threat. And it, it would be if it's a, you know, uh, the the tooth of a of a lion, but if it's a hypodermic syringe, very tiny thing, um, you know, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a threat. It is, in fact, in many cases, a real advantage. Look, another example that I, I can't help but be amused by. I don't know about in other countries, but in the United States, there's a not insignificant um, perception on the on the part of vaccine refusers now um, that somehow Bill Gates and Microsoft have, have got are, are injecting in these vaccines, they're injecting some sort of magical, mysterious substance that will enable Microsoft or the government to track people by virtue of what they're injecting <laughs> in the vaccines. And I'd like to ask some of these people, do you have a cell phone? You know? I don't know if they realize, but cell phones are constantly sending signals out to cell phone towers looking for the nearest one. And they send them out actually several per second, I believe. Um, and so if you get someone else's cell phone, I mean, cell phones are giving off information right now. You don't need to inject some magical, mysterious stuff into your body. And so we are very selective in our perception of threats, I guess is what I'm saying. And you're absolutely right. Very often they're wrong. And so the tendency to overshoot, just like the tendency to undershoot, is something I think that we we need to be really alert to um, mm -hmm. in terms of our useful consciousness. It's a phrase I'm going to employ more and more now in the future. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so now talking about nuclear deterrence, finally. So it, was, it, was there something that changed in terms of how we think about war, how people strategize and how they wage war against other countries, for example, after the bombs were dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Yeah, there was a substantial change. Um, one of the most important U.S. theorists, a fellow named Bernard Brody, uh, was the first, perhaps, to write about this. He said that the, um, I'm not sure I'm quoting him exactly, but he said, thus far, the, the purpose of our military establishment has been to win wars. Thus far, it's been to win wars. From now on, however, its chief purpose must be to avert them, that is to say, to deter them. It can have no other useful purpose. And so very quickly after the, uh, the, 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 the production, the discovery, the production of, of nuclear weapons, the notion of deterrence developed. Not right away. It took a little while. The U.S. initially had a monopoly. But that was the goal. That was the idea, uh, uh, ostensibly at least, to prevent war. Um, and it sounds good. It's hard to argue with that. If one could really prevent war in any way, it would be lovely. Uh, regrettably, there have been many efforts to prevent war based on particularly ferocious weapons, for instance. It was first thought that the 
the Gatling gun, which was a very early machine gun, would prevent war because it was so terrible. Um, and then others felt that it was, uh, well, Alfred Nobel originally argued that the, the, that the dynamite would prevent war because it was so horribly destructive. Um, he ultimately felt guilty about it, which is why he established the Nobel Prizes when he recognized it wasn't really going to do that. Um, and yet we still have the feeling, and, and I, I'm happy to talk about many ways in which deterrence, nuclear deterrence now, the threat of nuclear retaliation um, undermines itself. The logic, it's really illogical, it seems superficially logical, but in fact it's, it's, it carries within it a number of major inconsistencies and problems that make it self-defeating in many ways. Um, and actually, I believe, makes war more likely, ultimately nuclear war, more likely rather than less. Um, it's also the prime, perhaps really the only justification for the whole nuclear enterprise. Many people, probably most, in fact, accept nuclear, insofar as they accept nuclear weapons, it's because they feel, well, this is what we need to prevent nuclear war, whereas in, I, I will argue that the evidence is exactly the, the opposite. Um, I, sh I should add that, I, but by the way, as I describe in the book at the, at the very end, I'm not opposed to all aspects of deterrence. Uh, certainly some forms of conventional deterrence have worked, still do, even on our farm. I live on a um, horse farm, a 10-acre horse farm, uh, fenced, electric fence, in fact, to keep our horses in and keep intruders out. Um, we also have a 140-pound, highly territorial dog um, who loves us and he gets along well with our other dogs, but he does not like intruders. He's our deterrent, if you will, <laughs> but he's a conventional deterrent. And if his deterrence were to fail, the result would be that some other creature would have made it inside the fence and who knows what would have happened, but I can guarantee you that our whole farm wouldn't have blown up. The town wouldn't have blown up. Uh, the planet wouldn't have been rendered likely uninhabitable or at least severely endangered. And so certain forms of deterrence are, are okay. They, they work. Animals use them all the time. People use them effectively in many ways. Um, but I think a, it's really important to make a um, draw a, a, a bright line between conventional deterrence, whether it's our dog, Iskander is his name. He's a Anatolian shepherd from originally from Turkey. The breed is from Turkey, and so we decided he needed a, a, a Turkish name. Um, or to some extent, conventional armed forces, so long as they're employed appropriately, more for threat than for war. Um, but when it comes to the nuclear phenomenon, uh, it's a very different situation, and I would be happy to talk about that now. Sure. Uh, but, I mean, first of all, where does the idea of nuclear deterrence come from? 
was it that from the very beginning when people started producing more and more nuclear weapons they already had the goal of deterrence in mind or were they simply responding to other countries military power and only after the fact did someone come up with the idea of they being they producing more and more uh, nuclear weapons with the goal of deterrence? Well, actually, I, yeah, I quoted perhaps somewhat inaccurately from Bernard Brody, who wrote really in the immediate aftermath of the bombing, the destruction really of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, but in fact, uh, your question uh, suggests what, what really did happen. Originally, deterrence was not the goal. The goal was military might, strength, the notion that with the United States, because the, the United States, of course, were the, the discoverers, the inventors, what have you, the deployers of nuclear weapons. So the goal was to get this so-called winning weapon, this weapon make us the most powerful country on earth and allow us to manipulate the, the rest of the world, to threaten the world, not so much with deterrence because there wasn't a lot we had to deter. Um, to some extent, there was some focus on deterring Stalin in Europe um, Stalin's, the, the, the Red Army was, remained quite powerful after World War II. They were not uh, demobilized like uh, most of the Western forces. Um, it really wasn't then until somewhat later when the Soviet, the then Soviet Union developed its own nuclear weapons that theorists and military officials and politicians as well began to write within the United States now began to recognize that well what, what are we going to do now we can't really run the world because we have nuclear weapons and no one else does what can we do with them well at best we could perhaps prevent another country from attacking us but in terms of the pressures for um, what was widely recognized then is the nuclear arms race. It wasn't even then so much deterrence as it was competition, not between, say, the United States and the then Soviet Union, but competition between the United States Navy and the United States Air Force. Um, and th this has been very well documented that um, initially the Air Force was the, uh, the sole um, holder of nuclear weapons. And then it's a long, complicated, and fascinating story. Then the Navy developed the ability to do so, and then the, 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 the Air Force retaliated, if you will, by wanting more yet. And so the notion of really deterring the other side was actually initially much less important than the notion of winning the arms race, an arms race within the United States itself. The US ran an arms race with itself for a very long time. Um, Eventually, as the numbers became absolutely atmospheric and catastrophic in the world, um, there, became, there developed a growing focus, a way of supposedly of, of justifying these weapons via deterrence. But that was not the original idea. Right. So isn't it just the sheer number of nuclear weapons that we have out there by itself dangerous? I mean, just the number of them. Yes, it is. It is in, in a number of ways, um, in part because the more there are out there, the greater the risk that 
they could be stolen, um, that they could literally get lost. There were some situations not too long ago in the United States wherein um, B-52 bomber fully loaded with nuclear weapons was parked on a uh, the side area of an airfield and no one knew that it was there or that it had nuclear weapons. It was forgotten, essentially, for quite a long time until someone recognized, hey, wait a minute, what are we going to do about this bomber with all, you know, it's got a whole bunch of nuclear weapons in it. And apparently it was parked not that far from a fence. Well, you know, so there's literally, if you have too many, it's hard to keep track of them all. So there's that danger. I think a greater danger, though, Ricardo, is not so much the absolute numbers as the, the situations and circumstances that make it somewhat likely that they would be used, often in, in, in a very large proportion of these dangerous cases by accident, uh, which means not so much an accidental detonation, which has never happened, although there have been conventional explosions of, of their, uh, a nuclear bomb or warhead has a conventional explosive within it as well as the nuclear component. And there have been a number of situations where the conventional explosive has gone off. There hasn't been, which would, which itself scattered nuclear debris, but that's very different from a nuclear explosion. The greater danger is circumstances that could lead to misunderstanding and the use of nuclear weapons by error, false alarms, particularly worrisome situations. And much of what's going on in the world of deterrence has led to alarms being given far more credibility than they warrant. And there have been some horrifying cases, which again, I describe in the book, that, in which we came terrifyingly close to nuclear war based simply on errors, false alarms. Could you give us at least one example of that, of errors and false alarms that occurred and that could have led to a nuclear war? Oh my gosh, there are so many, it's almost hard to choose one. Um, I'll just list a few basic ones. There were cases in which a, um, uh, a gas leak that, took, that, that, that began to burn and make large flames in Siberia um, a gas line, a pipeline, was detected by U.S. radar satellites uh, as a launch. That is to say, that leak, that flame, was perceived as the uh, as a rocket exhaust. Um, there are cases within the United, and again, we we know a lot, uh, uh, quite a lot about this within the United States. The Soviet Union, in the past, and Russia now, is very close-mouthed about their near misses. Um, so, and there's every reason to think they've had a whole lot. Their technology has always been somewhat more primitive compared to that of the U.S. And so my guess is that they've had even more than we have. There have been cases in which, or the one dramatic case in which a, um, uh, a full-fledged nuclear alert was issued based on the expectation or the, the data showed a large launch approaching the United States. Well, it turned out that someone had put a... Uh, a test tape. This was in the old days when the computers worked on tapes, a, a test tape in a computer, and it was recognized as the real thing. And once again, things came very, very close. Um, certainly the Cuban Missile Crisis is a, a very dramatic example. Um, maybe the closest we, we ever came to nuclear war. Um, 
what many people don't realize is it wasn't just a matter of the Soviets having implanted nuclear weapons in Cuba, by the way, which they already had. It was the United States didn't realize at the time that these nuclear weapons were already there. We, Many people, including JFK, um, felt that they were, we would prevent them from doing it. Well, they already they were already there, and had we actually attacked Cuba, God knows what would have happened. Um, but beyond that, there were cases, there was, a, I'll give one other example. There was a um, Soviet submarine that was tracing the, the location and the activities of a U.S. Navy fleet. The Navy fleet knew, recognized that the submarine was there, and they wanted the submarine to surface. They didn't want to destroy the submarine. We weren't at war, but they wanted it to surface. And so they dropped um, what were essentially warning explosions, very, very small explosives, small detonations that were intended to tell the submarine, Soviet submarine, we know you're there, come on up. Well, the Soviet submarine didn't know that that's what was going on. They thought that these were legitimate depth charges attempting to destroy the submarine and that they were at great risk. What the Americans didn't know was that this Soviet submarine had a nuclear weapon aboard. They, it had a nuclear-armed torpedo. And this torpedo could have been used to destroy much, if not all, of the American fleet. And the Soviet submarine itself was unable to communicate with their um, leaders in Moscow because they were way under underwater and the communication ability wasn't that great. And they were told, in a last resort, this is what you should do. Um, and they felt that maybe a, a nuclear war had already started. There were three people on board that submarine who had the responsibility for making that final decision. Two of them, including the captain, said, yes, we need to we're, we're sunk, we're done for, we need to take as many Americans as we can with us. Um, the third one didn't quite believe it. And he said, no, we're not gonna do that. I'm not convinced that there really is a nuclear war and if there isn't, I don't wanna start one. And so they didn't. Had, and, and as it happened, this third person had just almost by chance, really by chance been put on that submarine. He was scheduled to be on a different one. And he was the most cool-headed. Had it been someone else, um, it's entirely likely that the U.S. much of the U.S. fleet would have been destroyed by this nuclear weapon, and World War III might well have happened. And that happened in the context of the Cuban Missile Crisis, just by chance. It was, and, and there were a few other events that happened at that same time. So, the number, the examples of this sort are absolutely terrifying. So those who claim, well, we, we, we're, uh, deterrence is working, we're, we're, we're just fine. Um, we haven't had a nuclear war. Well, that's so much like the story of the guy who jumps off a tall building and as he plummets past the 30th floor, he says, well, so far, so good. You know, um, That's, again, what I am now going to be describing as the, uh, the, the time of useful consciousness. Of course, when you're plummeting down a, from a high building, there's nothing useful you can do. But I think we, we have some time now. Re regrettably, it's um, one of the best known um, presumptions about deterrence that needs to be overcome is that deterrence has worked. Well, the fact that it has come so close to failing should be a wake-up call. 
also there are some logical problems. If deterrence hadn't worked, we wouldn't be around to pat ourselves on the back and say, wow, deterrence is working. Um, and I'll give you another story about that. And then maybe we should talk about some actual um, historical reasons for doubting that deterrence has worked. But right, uh, there's right. another wonderful story, like the guy jumping off the, off the or falling from the building, is the person who, um, who goes out and sprays perfume on his lawn every morning. And the neighbor, after a neighbor eventually uh, confronts him and says, well, why are you doing this? And the perfume sprayer says, well, I do it to keep the elephants away. <laughs> and the neighbor, she then says, well, that seems pretty weird. There, there aren't any elephants within 10,000 miles of here. And the perfume sprayer says, yes, you see, it works. Okay. <laughs> it's very easy to attribute success to something. Uh, and it may be completely mistaken to do so. So can we say that during the Cold War, the fact that we didn't have a nuclear war was simply the, a matter of luck? I think that's probably the case. Um, actually, Robert McNamara, who was President Kennedy's Secretary of Defense and was no, no dove, um, said exactly that. He said it wasn't wisdom that kept us from nuclear war. It was simply dumb luck. How long can you keep counting on dumb luck? You know, imagine a, um, or even skill for that matter. Um, I think it was Bertrand Russell, I'm not sure now, who said, well, imagine you're looking at a, um, uh, a tightrope walker. You're very impressed at this person's skill. And she may stay up there for five minutes, 10 minutes. Remarkable. How wonderful. Can you really have confidence that person can stay up there for 100 years? You know, it may be skill that keeps you up for a little while, but eventually uh, your skill will become so stressed or your luck is going to run out and you cannot count on this indefinitely. Um, and yet there is this presumption, very widespread presumption, that somehow um, deterrence has worked and will continue to work for into the indefinite future. Um, now, the fact that the U.S. and the Soviet, then Soviet Union never had a war, or at least certainly not a nuclear war, may well be because we didn't have anything worth having a war about. Um, not because of nuclear weapons, but in spite of the existence of nuclear weapons, which made everyone really jumpy. I mean, the Cuban Missile Crisis was about nuclear weapons. It wasn't prevented. It was not like nuclear weapons prevented a nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis. If it weren't for nuclear weapons, the Cuban Missile Crisis wouldn't have happened in the first place. The U.S. and the Soviet Union never had a war before nuclear weapons were invented. So how can we legitimately say that somehow afterward we haven't had a war because of them? We didn't have war with them even when they didn't exist. And then, of course, we've had all these close calls. Um, moreover, it, there, it isn't even defensible to argue that, um, that countries who don't have nuclear weapons 
are deterred from attacking countries that do. That is to say, the, the evidence here is actually historically really very strong. The Soviet Union was most aggressive toward the United States in the late 40s, in particular the, so the, 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 the Berlin crisis, 1948, when Stalin closed off access to Berlin and, it, and ultimately US and Soviet tanks were literally snout to snout. That was a time when the Soviets didn't have nuclear weapons at all. The U.S. had a nuclear monopoly. It didn't stop them from being aggressive. Some other really dramatic examples during the Korean War in 1950, uh, when so-called U.N. forces, which were really U.S. forces, um, turned the tide of what had initially been North Korean success and was moving, uh, were moving north toward China the Chinese government was fearful that they were going to keep on going, crossing the Yalu River and trying to overturn the, the newly established communist government. So they sent 300,000 troops, Chinese troops south. This is in 1950. China was still 14 years from developing nuclear weapons. The U.S. had a nuclear monopoly. We had dozens, probably hundreds of them. That didn't stop the Chinese. They weren't deterred. Remember, we're, talking, we're still talking about threats. The threat that the U.S. supposedly issued directly and indirectly by having this deterrent ability didn't amount to anything. It, it, it had no effect. I'll, I'll give just a couple more and then stop being a historian. But um, the government of Argentina invaded the Falklands, what the British called the Falklands, the Argentines called it the Malvinas Islands and in 1982 despite the fact that Argentina didn't have nuclear weapons, but the UK did, that threat uh, on the part of the UK did not deter the Argentines. Um, during the, um, the, Iraq, the, the, the first incarnation of the Iraq war um, in, what was that, 2003, Saddam Hussein, who did not have nuclear weapons, lobbed 39 Scud missiles against Israel, which did have nuclear weapons. Now, the Israelis never officially acknowledge that they have nuclear weapons, but everyone knows they do. They have roughly 200, in fact. Um, Saddam Hussein lobbed 39 Scud missiles, conventionally armed, of course, at Israel, caused quite a lot of consternation and to some destruction. Um, Israel didn't retaliate, it wouldn't have done them any good. They could have vaporized Baghdad, I suppose, but that wouldn't have done any, helped anybody. Um, it's certain the presence of nuclear weapons on the part of Israel did not deter a non-nuclear country. So the notion that having nuclear weapons will somehow make a nuclear armed country safer, even against a non-nuclear country, um, just does not carry any legitimacy and on top of that and I, I um maybe i'm talking too much but on top on top of that there's the whole phenomenon whereby deterrence not only doesn't work but actually has made things worse and i'd be happy to talk about that if you would like okay so tell us about that now <laughs> <laughs> okay so then how has 
how have the, how has nuclear deterrence actually made things worse? Well, in talking about animals and the, the use of threat, we talked about the issue of credibility. And I mentioned that, well, in the animal case, in most situations, it's not re there isn't really a problem with credibility. The animal has big teeth, big antlers, big claws, it has a big body. That threat is credible. Okay. Um, in the case of nuclear weapons, there's a big problem because that threat that is at the heart of deterrence lacks credibility because the outcome would be so destructive and devastating, not just to the victim, but to the whole planet, um, that it inherently does not seem credible because in many ways it is not credible. And the problem of credibility is one that has undermined deterrence. I'll explain how. For, let, let me emphasize the lack of credibility here. Um, imagine a police person I was going to say policeman, but I, it's appropriate. Or there are plenty of women, women who are police now. So imagine a police person armed with a backpack nuclear weapon outside a bank, and the robber appears. The robber is about to go in and rob the bank. The police person says, "Halt in the name of the law, or else." And the robber says, "Or else what?" And the person armed with the <laughs> carrying the nuclear weapons, or else I'll blow us up. I'll blow me up and you up in the bank in the whole city. Well, I think under those circumstances, the robber can be expected perhaps not to think that this is a very credible threat. Now, a deterrent, an effective conventional deterrent might work, a billy club or even perhaps a, a, um, a gun on the part or multiple police people but a nuclear weapon no it inherently lacks credibility so this problem the problem of the inherent lack of credibility on the part of nuclear deterrence has bedeviled theorists for a very long time um it would be as though a um an animal was make trying to make a threat that could not be taken seriously, will not be taken seriously by the recipient. So what do you do about that? Well, in order to um, make these threats credible, there have been, a, 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 there's been a large number of both theoretical developments and actual weapons deployed. The basic idea being, well, maybe we can make it more credible by developing the capacity for fighting a quote, and I'm putting this air quotes here, a limited nuclear war, just a few nuclear explosions, okay? And in, as though one can be, what, a little bit pregnant, you know, or, or a little bit dead. A little nuclear war, any number of scenarios, they always escalate into total nuclear war. One country does it, the other one responds, etc. And on top of that, in order to fight, quote, a limited nuclear war, you need to have limited nuclear weapons, which has involved developing low yield nuclear weapons. Now, in a way, it sounds like a good idea, having those that are a little less, less destructive. Why do you want them? Well, because they'd be more credible. Well, what does it mean if they're more credible? Well, why are they more credible, rather? Well, they're more credible because they're smaller 
and hence more potentially usable, let's say, on a battlefield. Well, there has been a, f a bright line against the use of nuclear explosions in, in times of crisis or war. Insofar as these weapons are made more usable because they're smaller and the idea is making them more credible, what you're doing then unavoidably is making them more likely to be used. There's a real paradox. You can't have something be more usable without making it more likely to be used, especially when the whole idea of being more usable is to make them more likely to be used so as to be more credible. And so this, this is an enormous problem that has yet to be solved. Um, and it's enormously dangerous because by virtue of that, again, uh, just to summarize it, there's been a, an order to try in an effort to try to make the use of nuclear weapons more credible, hence make deterrence, make that threat of deterrence more believable, more credible has pushed toward the development of weapons, nuclear weapons that are more likely to be used, which itself constitutes an enormous danger. And we see this among other things, particularly now actually in India, between India and Pakistan, where the Pakistanis who feel themselves at a disadvantage relative to India, um, have fielded lower yield nuclear weapons and have given battle potential battlefield commanders the authority to use them. Well, the idea is to be more credible in deterring India, but at the same time, it's more likely to be used in the event of an actual uh, conventional war between them. So th there's this real sense in which the effort to enhance deterrence actually undermines it unavoidably. Um, and this is, this is yet an, w one particular example of where effort to uh, enhance deterrence or even make deterrence real makes it unreal and all the more dangerous. And there's also another argument that nuclear war, uh, nuclear war, uh, not nuclear war, sorry, nuclear deterrence proponents bring to the table that test. They say that, for example, nuclear deterrence was responsible for the falling of the Soviet Union and that nuclear wars uh, protected the West, particularly from a communist tyranny. But does that make any sense? There may be some justification, particularly early on when the Red Army was large and potentially threatening. Um, but one, again, one has to combine that with a recognition of the disadvantages. Um, among those disadvantages, not all, again, a huge issue looming would be the, the, um, the near misses. We haven't had a nuclear war once again, but um, the fact that we came so very, very close, I think we came much closer to nuclear war than we came to having the West be overcome by uh, the Soviet Union. Um, neither one happened, but the danger in the first case, I think was much, much greater um, once again, there's this notion of attributing success to something that, first of all, is immensely risky in itself, and secondly, we don't have any reason really to know that it has been responsible. Um, you know, not too long ago, there, well, not, there, there are uh, um, 
solar eclipses, for instance. There was one in the United States maybe two years ago or so. It turns out that in ancient, in ancient China, people were aware of solar eclipses, and it was believed that that was caused by a dragon devouring the sun. And uh, what the people would do is they'd go outside, they were terrified, they'd go outside and yell and scream and bang on pots and pans to scare away the dragon, and it worked every time. <laughs> so again, the fact that this is something has been is correlated with something else doesn't in any way mean that it did it that it that it is responsible for it and moreover again i would argue that um we're still around in spite of nuclear weapons not not because of them um there's other let me mention two other cases examples in which i think deterrence is particularly dangerous far more dangerous than the risk that we might have been um uh, swallowed up by communism like the the dragon was ostensibly swallowing up the sun uh, one of them is rationality deterrence relies on a kind of the expectation of rationality that individuals in a situation of great crisis leaders will carefully titrate the risks and benefits of what they're going to do what they should do what they shouldn't do what's going to happen and yet, you don't have to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist or an expert in human behavior to know that people don't always behave rationally. And the, the expectation then of nuclear deterrence theory that situations of great crisis with nuclear weapons on board, if you will, in which you scare the pants off the leaders on each side, and then expect those leaders to behave with exquisite, rational, good judgment is just ridiculous. There's nothing in human behavior that should lead us to believe that that'll happen. Um, here in the United States, again, it does, let me emphasize, you don't need any particular arcane wisdom to know that people behave out of, what, misconceptions, anger, um, despair, frustration, insanity, stubbornness, revenge, pride, dogmatic conviction. Uh, here in the United States, we finally got out from under a fellow named Donald Trump, whose emotional stability was very questionable, um, to put it mildly, impulsive, vindictive, narcissistic, uh, And I should add that it's not just Donald Trump. No one should have the, uh, the power to make the, that kind of decision. Not Trump, not Mike Pence, not Joe Biden, not Kamala Harris, you know, not Putin, not Modi. These, the notion that human beings should be, can be trusted to behave with exquisite rationality when literally the fate of the earth is at stake is totally unacceptable. And that notion is at the heart of deterrence, once again. We don't like to think of it that way, but it is. And the alternative to leaving human beings in their supposed rational judgment to make that decision is to have the computers make the decision. Okay, let the satellites, if they detect the launch, 
send it to the computer and everything goes off. Well, again, there have been hundreds of near misses in the sense of false alarms of one sort or another. So you sure as hell don't want the computers when things go wrong. How many times does your computer go on the fritz? In fact, you and I, Ricardo, have tried to communicate. I remember in the past <laughs> at one point and we couldn't get Skype to work or I couldn't. You know, you don't want to rely on this if your life is at stake. And you sure as hell don't want to rely on human rationality to come up with this. If you don't do one and you don't do the other, then you're not doing deterrence and you shouldn't be. Okay. <laughs> do you think that it's possible for us to move to a denuclearized world? And if so, how would we make that move? Yeah. I think it is possible. It won't be easy. It's not going to happen quickly. But we need to start moving much more rapidly than we are so far. Again, this is this is our this is our time of use potentially useful consciousness, um, and we need to do it. The initial uh, in in the book, I go through a number of recommendations of what we could do. Although that's not the main focus of the book, but the last chapter does. The initial goal, I think, really has to be not necessarily to eliminate all nuclear weapons, because that's simply unrealistic. It's not going to happen. But that has to be a real goal. We have to keep it ever in front of us and not just some, not just words. The initial actions have to be to reduce the immediate threats that nuclear deterrence has generated. And this can be done in a number of ways, in particular, um, get rid of the land base, the, the ICBMs, because these guys uh, don't serve to deter so much as to um, provide a great deal of risk because they can be targeted by another side. And so there'd be a temptation to do so in the event of a crisis. The result of that is the side that has them, particularly say the United States and the Soviet Union, would be tempted to use, quote, use them or lose them um, before they get targeted and destroyed. And that could result, in other words, to preempt their use. That could cause the other side to preempt the preemption because they know the other side might be preempting and there's no end to this back and forth. So the first thing you want to do is, I think, get rid of ICBMs. You want to get rid of the hair trigger mechanisms that certainly the U.S. and Russia have. Um, you want to get rid of the uh, low yield, believe it or not, get rid of the low yield nuclear weapons because they're so damn usable that they're really... Uh, particularly dangerous. Um, you want to establish absolute policies whereby no one individual can make this decision. Um, th there are a whole array of things that can be done. At this point, the U.S. and Russia have roughly 93% of the world's nuclear weapons. So we have a long way to go getting rid of ours and making some of these strategic changes that will make us all safer. As we lower these numbers, we will eventually, I would hope and I think it can be done, get down to the numbers that some of the other nuclear countries have. China has roughly 300, uh, France has maybe two, 250, England has somewhat fewer, Israel, etc. Once we get down to those lower numbers, then we can get more serious about getting rid of the immediate threats that they pose recognizing that they are threats to ourselves more than they are effective deterrence, far more. Um, 
again, there are any number of things that can be done, but I think it's important not to let the expression that's used in the U.S., not to let the best be enemy of the good. In other words, the best thing would be to get rid of them altogether. Uh, we can't get rid of them tomorrow, but um, we can certainly do all sorts of good things. The United Nations has recently supported and passed uh, a legal statement making nuclear weapons illegal, putting them in the same category as biological and chemical weapons. None of the nuclear states have signed on to that, but this is part, this is very important because it's a part of a process of delegitimation uh, that is not in itself going to solve the problem. But the more nuclear weapons are delegitimized in people's minds, the more feasible it is for people to think beyond deterrence. That is to say, to think beyond that particular threat that constitutes a threat not just to the recipient of the threat, but to those of us who are giving the threat at the same time. Yeah, so, uh, okay, le let's just talk about one last topic before we go, uh, and uh, taking one step ahead, I guess, there's a good example of a country uh, which went through demilitarization, Costa Rica. Would you, could you tell us about it? Yes, I'm happy to do so. Um, my wife and I fall, fell in love with Costa Rica because of its demilitarization and other things. It's a wonderful country in many ways. People, warmth of the people, the biological diversity. They got rid of their military, interestingly, in 1948 um, for reasons that were not necessarily purely humanistic. Actually, there had been some very low-level civil war of sorts that uh, resulted in some genuine deaths, but nothing on the scale of civil wars that have happened in other countries. The, the uh, um, then president decided to get rid of the military because he recognized that this was a threat to himself. Um, and particularly that there was a great likelihood that the United States, which was dominating Latin America and still is to a large extent, would use the Costa Rican military to overthrow him because he had a number of left-leaning tendencies. Not dramatically so, but in any event, um, they did get rid of the military and Costa Rica hasn't had a military since 1948. Um, and they haven't had a war. Now, and it's not as though they live in a peaceful neighborhood. Nicaragua has not had a very good time of it. Panama up until recently, well, until 1989, was a, a series of military dictatorships as well. As a result of not investing, not spending large proportions of its national budget on the military, Costa Rica has a nationwide health care system that is in many ways far superior to that of the United States. They don't have the U.S. technology in many cases, but everyone is covered. They have education far more available than in the United States. Uh, they have something like 25, 26% of the country is preserved in either national parks or biological reserves, the highest proportion of any country on earth, uh, as a result of which they've become sort of a tropical eco-tourism 
location. Um, they've invested in their people and in their environment instead of in the military, and they have profited immensely from it. So there, there are models out there. Now, for better or worse, most countries um, maybe can't quite get away with it now, um, but there's no reason why eventually they couldn't. Um, the biggest change that we would need, all of us, is a change of attitude. We need to get away, and it may, this may sound sort of wishy-washy, but I think it's really true. We need to recognize that the use, getting our way via threats is of something of very limited effectiveness under certain very specific circumstances. Um, but when it comes to the use of military, and particularly nuclear weapons, much more likely to threaten us than to help us. And so if we revisit our perceptions that will, I think, um, set the stage for some genuine and really much needed changes. Mm -hmm. So one last question. <clears throat> Do you think that there would be any so good solutions out there to prevent war from happening? I mean, because uh, I know that there are people like, for example, Steven Pinker, and he talks about this in The Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now, who say that, or propose several different reasons for a war to have been in decline, or, I mean, I mean some people contest, uh, contest the war in decline thesis, but anyway, uh, and he says that some of the reasons would be, for, like, for example, having international orders, trading between countries, and stuff like that, so what do you think about it? Well, I think there, there really is potential for this. Um, we spoke earlier about the, the, the threat, if you will, that people tend to exaggerate on the one hand how wonderful things are and how they're not, there's no reason to take any threat seriously, or on the other hand, everything is a threat and so we have to hide under our chairs, under our beds. Um, it, has, it was claimed in the past, um, actually just before World War I, in a best-selling book, that there's no way war would ever happen because of the uh, mutual economic dependence of one country, on every country on every other country. Well, that was just before World War One, so that was not a thesis that held up. On the other hand, there is more uh, interconnection now, perhaps, than ever before. Not just perhaps, I think there, there is more. I think there is the potential for um, avoiding war, greater potential than we ever had in the past, so long as we can disenthrall ourselves from the expectation that we can prevent war, especially global war, by nuclear threat. Um, the notion of being able to stand down and focus on, I was going to say more genuine threats, I'm not, that's not quite the word, I think nuclear war is a really genuine threat. Um, but to focus on some of the other worldwide threats that we all share, like global heating, global warming, as some people call it, um, uh, the pandemic right now, any number of things that really have legitimate call to, call, to, to induce people to recognize their shared vulnerability, as opposed to trying to make ourselves safe by making others more vulnerable. 
it's, it's as though we were we we're in a boat, um, a small boat, a little rowboat, and we're under the illusion that we can somehow make ourselves more safe by making the other end of the boat more tippy for the other guy. Um, if the boat overturns, we're all in trouble. And at the same time, the boat is leaking. So what we need to do is start bailing out the boat and not trying to threaten the other occupants of the boat. Right. Okay, so let's end on that note just before we go again. The book is Threats, Intimidation and Its Discontents. Uh, David, it, was, it has been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for coming on the show. You're most welcome, Ricardo, and it's been my pleasure too. Bye-bye now. Bye now. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been doing the channel for more than three years now, and it is thanks to people like you that it's been running for so long. And so if you like what I'm doing, please pay a visit to my Patreon page or to PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of the interview. And to consider making a pledge there, support the show. And otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share, share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Yevon Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Librand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Sam, uh, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araujo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londoño Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Miran B., Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Max Bailby, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Alan or uh, Al Orwitz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linares, Lida Cosmides, Simon Afzal, my producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafinia, Kian Gilligan, Sergio Codriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Venegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardos France, and Niroban Balachandran. And my executive producers, Michelle Ruzieski, Rosie James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.